God, he is willing to forgive, and uh, he desires to forgive. We learn that nothing merits the favor of God, that we cannot earn anything from God, that we can only receive from God. We receive his grace, we receive his mercy, and we learned that when the lost are found, God celebrates. And we see this in all three parables uh, here in the 15th chapter uh, of Luke, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And they all demonstrate this truth that God rejoices when the lost are found. And we should rejoice when the lost are found. We also noted last week that while this uh, parable has traditionally been called the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, it's also a parable about his begrudging brother. And it is also, and I would say most centrally, about the loving father who is gracious to both of his sons who are both lost just in different ways, just different versions of being lost. So the parable, I think, is best described as the parable of two lost sons and a loving father. And so that's what I've titled uh, the message. And so today we turn our attention to the older brother in the parable and his relationship with his father. Uh, but before we read the story from the Bible, let me uh, mention, as I did last week, that last week's sermon and this week's sermon uh, both, I am borrowing very liberally, much more liberally than I usually do, uh, from the writings of Timothy Keller in this uh, book that he uh, wrote, excellent book, The Prodigal. God. And I would highly recommend this book to every single one of you. Um, just a great read. It's, it's a fairly easy read, uh, but, but just a very good book. And so I would recommend that to you. When I uh, cite direct quotes, I, I will try to make sure I cite direct quotes, but I just want to acknowledge that even beyond the direct quotes, the message is heavily, heavily influenced uh, by this particular uh, book. So let's look at verses uh, 25, I guess it is, we'll start at and read through verse 32 of Luke 15. I'll read, you can follow along as I do. And, and keep in mind that what we're reading today comes directly after the party for the younger brother, ordered by his gracious father, has begun. So all that stuff we read last week, all the things we learned about the younger brother and the father, and, and it ends with the father having ordered a party for the son who has returned home. And so what we're going to read now happens immediately after this party has started. Here's what it says. Meanwhile, the older brother or the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Not a phrase you'll hear from kids these days. Uh, <laughs> hey, that one just came to me. I didn't even plan that joke. That, that just, just quick, witty, quick. Uh, <laughs> But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, 
You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I've called the message Two Lost Sons. But in many respects, we uh, don't think of this older brother as being lost. In, In many respects, this older brother just doesn't meet the typical definition of being lost. I mean, consider what he says about himself, which the father does not dispute, and which we have no reason to question. He says that he never disobeyed his father's orders. He always did what his father said. Now, if being lost, you know, kind of the the definition that we came to last week is being out from under the care and protection and authority of the father, then this son doesn't appear to be lost. It almost seems as though he can't be lost because he has remained under the authority of the father. He has never disobeyed his father's orders. He has always done what was expected of him. He worked on the farm. He worked hard. He was where he should be, when he should be. He had never left the farm to pursue wild living like his younger brother had done. I mean, there is no better evidence for being under authority than to never disobey your authority. And so on the surface, we look at this story and this is the good son. The the younger one, it's obvious that he's lost. I mean, he's out doing wild stuff. He's out doing crazy stuff. He's, He's out really showing his lostness to everybody. But this is the good son. Never having left the farm, always having obeyed, he does not look like he's lost. But he is. But he is. And we know he's lost for a few different reasons. One reason we know he's lost is because what causes his father joy makes him angry. The father's joyful. He's not in tune with the father. He's angry over what the father is joyful about. We know he's lost in terms of his relationship with his father because of how disrespectfully he uh, responds to his father. And while we don't know what his ultimate decision was, it's interesting to note that the story ends without him responding positively to his father's appeal to come in to the party. So he looks like he's been under his father's authority if we observe his actions. But in reality, we can tell from the story that his heart is not actually yielded to his father. He looks the part on the outside, but he is secretly rebellious. He has secretly, at the heart level, Even though he's continued to obey, he has secretly thrown off the authority of his father. This older brother is just as lost as the younger brother in terms of his relationship to his father. It's just in a different way. The the younger brother had chosen his own particular strategy for acquiring happiness, the strategy of self-discovery, throwing off the father's rule. But this older brother, this older son, has chosen a different 
but equally wrong strategy, which is a very common strategy among both religious and non-religious people. It's especially common among religious people. And it's common to this very day. And it is the strategy that Tim Keller in this book, The Prodigal God, refers to as moral conformity. Moral conformity. And what Keller means by this is that the older brother has dutifully obeyed his father. He has conformed his actions to his father's wishes, but he hasn't done so out of pure motives. He hasn't done so simply because he loves the father. He hasn't done so simply because he is grateful and appreciative of his father. He has obeyed the father as a means of getting what he wants out of the father. He has obeyed the father as a means of getting what he wants out of the father. He has served faithfully as a way of putting his father in his debt. As a way he believes of putting his father in the position of owing him. My father owes me. It's just a different form of rebellion than what the younger brother took. But it's still rebellion. His obedience. I mean, how how messed up is this? His obedience is actually rebellion. It is a way of asserting his will over the will of his father. It is a way he believes of getting what he wants, forcing what he wants from the father. Keller summarizes uh, this insight into the older brother by writing this. It is a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. Wow, that'll take a little thinking through, won't it? Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. And there's no doubt from the parable that the older brother at the heart level has rebelled against his father. Look at how he responds when he realizes the party that's going on for his wayward brother. Notice how he speaks to his father. He starts out saying, look... It's in effect, he is saying, now you look here. Now that shouldn't go over well between a father and a son today. But in that culture, it especially would not have gone over well. You didn't speak to your father with such disrespect, but he speaks very disrespectfully. Now you look here. And then he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. He speaks disrespectfully, and his words betray that he wasn't serving out of love, but he was serving to get what he wanted, and now that he did not get what he wanted out of the relationship, out of the service that he had given his father, now he's angry. And friends, this is a common approach that we take with God. Probably all of us in this room at some time or other have taken this approach with God. And some of us may be taking this approach with God right now. We may not even be really aware that we're doing it. But hopefully this parable helps to make us aware of how we do things. People live very moral lives, at least on the, you know, 
the curve that we, that we grade by. They, they, they live moral lives. They don't cuss, drink, smoke, and chew. And they don't go with girls who do. <clears throat> I'm glad you liked that. I thought it was kind of corny, but I'm glad you liked it. They, uh, they come to church every time the doors are opened, which is a good thing. You ought to do that. They serve in ministry, which is a good thing. They attend home group, which is a good thing. You ought to do that. They read their Bibles every day. They only listen to 104.9 The River, bloop, bloop. <laughs> I was uh, driving some of the uh, middle schoolers uh, back from the middle school camp out yesterday, and they uh, wanted the, um, the, the radio on. And my son uh, hollered out, could you please turn on music instead of talk radio? And so I, uh, I turned on 93.3, which is the oldie station. And one of the kids was just aghast that I hadn't turned it to 104.9. I can't believe you're not listening to 104.9, he said. I'm sorry, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a candy bar if you don't tell anybody. (laughs) So from all appearances, these folks that live moral lives, many of us, are faithful. Don't look rebellious. Don't look wayward. But many times they, we, are. They look faithful. They look moral. They may even look like they really love the Lord. They may even look like they are a model of what a Christian disciple should be. But they aren't. Because they're living morally. But they are doing so as a strategy to get what they want. To force what they want out of God. They secretly make deals with God. Things like this. I'll go to church. You bless my business. I won't cheat on my spouse. You make sure we always have plenty of money. I'll give to charity. Or I'll give tithes to the church. And you make sure I never have a health problem. I'll lead a ministry. You make sure my kids grow up to serve you. I'll serve at a soup kitchen. You make sure that I'm able to live the American dream. I'll live right, and then you'll owe me, God. You'll owe me. This is what the older brother was saying to the father. I've slaved for you, and now you haven't done what I wanted. You owed me something, and you haven't come through with what you owed me. And that's what many people try to do with God. I'll live for you, God, but then you owe me. Now, now of course, God desires our obedience. Jesus did teach that if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. So this certainly isn't a message that should be (laughs) construed to say, you know, keeping his commandments is bad. It's not. It's good. God desires and is pleased when we obey Him from a pure heart. 
But when we do things that we think are pleasing to God, and then we raise them up in front of God as a way of saying, look, God, look what I've done for you. Look look how impressive I have been in serving you. And now, because of how impressive I've been, here's what I expect from you. You owe me this now, and, and I expect to collect from you. That's when God says to us, your righteousness is as filthy rags to me. This won't get you anywhere with me. God desires obedience that flows from a heart yielded to him. A heart that's full of appreciation for his grace. But when we try to put God in our debt through our obedience, it becomes something that's very ugly and something that is very offensive to God. You see, we can never earn our way with God. We, we just can't do it. We can never put God in our debt. Our only posture toward God is one of receiving. We are able to receive His unmerited favor. We're not able to earn God's favor. And, and when we start thinking that we are earning our way with God... We are simply engaging in another sinful strategy for acquiring happiness and fulfillment that we desire. It is a sinful strategy. And what's the end result of the moral conformity strategy? You know, the end result of self-discovery we found last week was bankruptcy. But what's the end result of the moral conformity strategy? It is anger and disillusionment. Anger and disillusionment. Verse 28, the older brother became angry. Verse 29, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me. 30, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, just food for thought, but I find it interesting that the parable never says that the younger son squandered the property with prostitutes. Never once says that. We we have no reason really to think that that's what he did. I mean, we know human nature, so, you know, I guess we can kind of think in that direction, but but the parable doesn't tell us that. Could it have been that this this righteous older brother was actually projecting his own sinful desires on the younger brother, revealing in yet another way that his obedience was a forced obedience rather than a sincere obedience. He obeyed, but he resented what he was missing out on. He held his desires in check, but again, it was only to put his father in his debt. So we see his response is angry. He's upset that he didn't get what he believed he deserved, the the goat to party with. And, And he's upset that the brother has gotten what he hasn't earned, a party, the fattened calf. And so he's disillusioned by it all. And this is where the strategy of moral conformity always leads us, to anger and disillusionment. We serve God to get something from God, and when we don't get it, then we're angry, and we may become disillusioned. God, 
I thought we had a deal. I was going to honor my marriage vows and you were going to make sure I had enough money. But now I've lost my job and and money is tight. I can't pay this bill this week. You didn't keep the deal we had, God. Oh, and God, I noticed something else. I noticed Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so, who I know for a fact has violated their marriage vows, and they just have money that they don't know what to do with. So I was good, and look at the mess I'm in. They're not good. Look at what a wonderful situation they're in. Disillusioned. God, I thought we had a deal. I was going to tithe, and you were going to guarantee that I always had good health. But now I have uh, adult onset diabetes. I'm worried. I kept my end of the deal, God. You haven't kept yours. We thought that we had God in our debt. And then we find out that he's not in our debt. And we're angry. And we're disillusioned. The younger son is lost and he looks lost. But the older son is likely in the more dangerous position. Because he doesn't look lost. The younger son realized he was lost. The older son is in the more dangerous position because he doesn't think of himself as lost. But he is. In his heart, he is separated from his father. Uh, My dad preached a message on this parable years ago that he titled, Leaving the Father Without Leaving the Farm. It's a great title because it perfectly describes what's going on with this this, uh, uh, older brother. He looks close to his father because he stayed geographically connected to his father. But he's really left the father. He is not close. He is separated at the heart level. And what about us? How many of us look the part with our grading on a curve, morally conformed lives? How many of us look like we're really close to God? Maybe even look like we're following hard after Jesus. But really we have just stayed geographically close to Jesus. Really we've just continued to do the things that are expected of us. Because if we, we, we think that if we do those things that are expected, we will get what we want from God. But in our hearts toward God... It's not there. We're we're separated. We're far from God. Friends, this is what lies behind all of our I'm a pretty good person, so I'm okay with God thoughts. This is what lies behind it all. And it really doesn't matter if if that comes from a religious persuasion or a non-religious persuasion. When you have that thought... That I'm a good boy or girl, and because I am, God has to do what I want. God must make life good for me. And because I'm good, God will welcome me to heaven when I come to the end of this life. 
I'm good, and so God is in my debt. This sinful attitude is what's behind all of those I'm pretty good strategies that we have. Keller gives us three ways to know if we might be an older brother or at least what he terms older brother-ish. He notes that there's a big difference between older brothers and real gospel-believing Christians. But he also notes that there are many sincere Christians, many genuine Christians, who are older brotherish. So, so here are three ways that you can identify if you may be an older brother. And I'll tell you, uh, I saw myself uh, in at least one of these. And I would encourage you to be open to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal if any of these apply to you. And if so, consider the fact that you may at least be older brother-ish. Here's the first one. When life does not go as you want, you become angry and bitter. This can demonstrate itself, manifest itself from things that are really significant all the way, I believe, down to things that are fairly insignificant but very telling uh, about us. You know, maybe you're having great difficulty in your marriage. Maybe you've always had great difficulty in your marriage. And you're angry because uh, you've served God in some way that you thought was supposed to exempt you from a difficult marriage. But, But it hasn't. And then you look at a couple that haven't served God at all. And their marriage seems, from what you can see, it seems to be wonderful. You're disillusioned. It, it seems unfair and it, and it makes you angry. It makes you bitter. You've been passed over time and time again for a promotion at work that you thought by now God was going to open the doors to promotion for you. And you're angry with God because you thought that your faithful devotional life should warrant God directing that promotion your way. You're angry. Because deep down you believe God owes you. And because he has not repaid you the way that you wanted repaid, you are angry, you are disillusioned. And again, this can go, I believe, from very significant things like these examples I've just given all the way down to things that are fairly insignificant. Things that you may even think are a bit of a silly example, but I do think they're very telling. Things like smashing your thumb with a hammer. Or biting a huge chunk out of your lip like I did this morning. (laughs) Our reactions to these little things, I believe, reveal a lot about our attitude toward what God owes us. Why do so many, including too many Christians, take God's name in vain when they get hurt? Here's what I think is sometimes behind it. We, we, we don't tend to, uh, you know, schedule retreat time to ponder our reaction to smashed thumbs. And yet I think there is something real here. I think that many times the reason we respond with such anger, we respond by taking God's name, is because we feel as though God should have kept us from that pain. Really, God? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm building a prop for the, for the children's ministry team. Really? 
Why do we become so angry sometimes when we have a flat tire? Have you ever had a flat tire and it just about sent you into the fetal position? Have, I, I think some of you have. And, and here's what I think is often behind that. God, really, can you not just give me a break? Deep down, we believe God owed us no flat tires. But we have a flat tire. And it's at the most inconvenient time. And we think, God, why'd you let this happen? Why'd you do this to me, God? I mean, after all, I'm just trying to get to the church potluck. Why did this have to happen? Can I? Well, I can because I have the microphone and you can't stop me. Um, Let me rephrase. I would like to remind us of an important truth. God does not owe us anything. God doesn't owe you anything. And God doesn't owe me anything. He really doesn't. Here is what we have earned according to the Bible. Death. Judgment. That's what we've earned. That's what is due us. That's what we're owed. Every good thing in life and our lives could be transformed if we would really believe this. Every good thing we receive in life, everything we receive from God, it is all grace. It's all unmerited. We don't deserve any of it. Rather than thinking, why do bad things happen to me? Our thought really should be, why does anything good happen to me? Matt Chandler writes in the explicit gospel. And what you need to know about Matt Chandler before you hear this line is that Matt Chandler is 30, probably at this point, 35-year-old pastor of a megachurch in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who at about 32 or 33 years old fell over on Thanksgiving, I believe it was 2009, and within a couple days was diagnosed with a very rare form of brain cancer and told that he had two years to live. This is a a young man who says of his life that up until that point, literally everything he touched turned to gold. And now at 32 or 33 years old, he's told you have two years to live. By God's grace, he is still with us and is still cancer uh, free and remission from what I understand. But here's what he writes in the midst of that type of life experience. While we lament the apparent injustice of pain and suffering, how often we forget that every good thing in a fallen world is wholly a gift of God's mercy and grace. He has cancer. He's told he's not going to see his kids get to middle school, much less graduate, get married, have grandchildren. 
And yet he says, everything we receive in this life is wholly a gift of God's mercy and God's grace. God doesn't owe us. Everything we have that is good, we receive only by grace. His unmerited favor. But you might be an older brother. Or at least older brotherish. If you get angry and bitter when things don't go the way that you want. Because you believe that God owes you. So honestly answer the question. Does this describe you? Secondly, you might also be an older brother if you achieve a sense of significance through competitive comparison. Competitive comparison. The older brother compared himself to the younger brother. And when he did that, he felt that he merited some special consideration. And how often do we compare ourselves to someone else and then we, we turn to God, in essence, and say, See, it is as I suspected. I am pretty good. See, God? How often do we kind of assuage our, our own conscience by looking at someone else that enables us to assure ourselves, you know, I really am a pretty good person. I ought to be appreciated by my spouse, my friends, my church. I, I ought to be appreciated by God because, I mean, I am pretty good. After all, I could be like that other person. And there's someone in your mind. Uh, of course, when we do this, we almost always pick a person who is living that extravagantly sinful life like the younger brother was. That, that's how we do our comparisons. We never think to pick someone surrendered to Jesus to do our comparisons with. Never. We always compare ourselves to someone that we perceive is in some way worse than us. So examine yourself. Honestly, do you do the competitive comparison exercises? Uh, assuring yourself of your goodness by comparing your insignificant shortcomings with someone else's really significant sins. Is that, is that what you do? If so, you might be an older brother. You might be at least older brother-ish. And you might be employing the sinful strategy of moral conformity. Which we should note, is the strategy of those people in the Bible that we love to revile, the Pharisees. But that while we revile them, we often act just like them. And finally, Keller tells us that we might be an older brother if our obedience to God's commands, our compliance with the will of God, is a joyless obedience, a joyless compliance. And this one probably hits a lot of us right between the eyes. The older brother had served faithfully. That's not in dispute in the parable. But his reaction demonstrates that his service had been joyless. And when we don't obey God for the right reasons, and when we don't serve God for the right reasons, our service is joyless. We are joyless. Obedience to God, service to God is a joyful thing when it comes from a heart that is truly in love with the Father. 
A heart that is truly in love with God. A heart that is truly full of appreciation for God's grace. But when it is uh, simply done as a means of putting God in our debt, it is always lacking joy. And it's lacking joy because it's not genuine. And when it's not genuine, you know what it is? It's really just a very difficult way to try to get what we want out of God. Just a very hard way to try to get through life. You might be an older brother, or at least older brotherish, if your obedience is joyless. And so now we've seen uh, both of the father's sons. We've seen that they both are lost, just in different ways. And once we see that both sons are lost, the parable reveals its greatest truth, and that is that the father loves and desires to be gracious to both lost sons. Last week we saw how the father graciously welcomed home, received home his lost younger son, and returned him fully to his position as a son. And today we see the father respond graciously to the older son. He doesn't return anger for anger, which was the common uh, uh, thing that would have happened in that time and in that place. Instead, he graciously appeals to his son. Verse 28, So his father went out and pleaded with him. Please look at this differently. Please come into the party. He pleaded Verse 31, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. His response wasn't, you ungrateful, you ungrateful son. Get out of my sight. No, his response was a reminder, everything I have is yours. The angry words, the proof that his service had been done to manipulate The disillusion, the refusal to welcome his brother, none of it stops the father from lovingly and graciously pleading with his son. And if you are here today as an older brother, God pleads with you. God pleads with all of us in that condition. He does not get angry with us. He lovingly and graciously pleads with us to reconsider, to change. Keller writes this, and I think this is such a wonderful line. He says, uh, uh, a paragraph, he says, Jesus is not a Pharisee about Pharisees. He is not self-righteous about the self-righteous, nor should we be. He not only loves the wild-living, free-spirited people, but also the hardened religious people. And you know, this is something that many young Christians forget. Uh, and I don't mean young as in new to the faith, but, but young in age often forget. As you know, those, those uh, old people who are just religious, God loves them too. God is not angry with them any more than He's angry with the wild living people. He desires all of them to surrender their sinful strategies for getting what they want from Him and come humbly to the foot of His cross. That's what He desires 
for everyone. And so here's the central truth of the story. No matter how any of us have related wrongly to God, no matter whether we've thrown off his authority, no matter whether we've tried to, to, to conform morally to put him in our debt, no matter what wrong and sinful strategy we've adopted to get what we want out of God, no matter which version of lost we are, you are, God responds graciously to you. Whether you're a younger brother or you're an older brother, God responds graciously. He welcomes you to come back. Last week we saw his welcome of the younger brother, and I believe that this week he is appealing. I believe he is pleading, just like he did with the son in the story, with an older brother that is here today to turn back to God, to turn your heart back to your father. Stop trying to manipulate God. Stop trying to earn your way with God. Realize that your strategy is just another form of being lost. And turn from the wrong path you're on back to God, your Father. If you've seen yourself in the older brother today, you can rest assured that God is ready to welcome you back. You can rest assured that He invites you into the party for all of those who are lost and have been found. If we would say today, you know what, I do see myself in this older brother. How can I return to God? How can I abandon my misguided strategy for acquiring happiness? Here are just a few things that I would submit for your consideration. First of all, we we have to acknowledge our need of God's grace. Now, this is hard for older brothers because we have conditioned ourselves to think that we are earning our way. We have to abandon the strategy of moral conformity and realize that it is all, it is all about grace. And here's one of the ways that I think we can do that. We have to see, clearly see, the beauty of what God has done for us through Christ. We, we have to consider what it cost God to show us mercy. To show us grace, it cost him his one and only son. We have to see clearly Jesus hanging on the cross, dying for our sins, and come to the realization that he wouldn't have done that. And God would not have permitted it if we could earn our way with God. If we could merit God's favor, if we could put God in our debt. God would have never permitted his son to die for us. We have to look at the cross and be moved by the sight of what it costs God, what it costs Jesus to show us mercy and grace. And when we see the love of Jesus demonstrated on the cross, it should, it should attract our hearts to him. That's what it should do. And when we see the beauty of what he's done for us, then we can stop striving, stop manipulating, stop trying to put God in our debt, and simply do what we should have done all along, which is receive his grace, rest in his grace, and live the rest of our lives understanding that every good thing that comes our way is holy by the grace 
of God. And then having observed the beauty of what God has done, having received His grace, our hearts should be filled with appreciation and we should begin serving, being obedient, out of a heart that is full of love and gratitude for what God has done. And so if you're an older brother, or at least older brother-ish, I appeal to you to turn away from this strategy that's going to lead you to anger and disillusionment, to stop trying to put God in your debt because He cannot be put in your debt, to stop clinging to your goodness because you're really not good. And I'm really not good. And simply receive the love and the grace, the mercy of your Father. And here is one of the ways that you can know you have rejected this sinful strategy of moral conformity and that you have returned your heart to God our Father. It is when you can rejoice over your Father's mercy and grace extended to others who were lost and are now found, even if you're, in your mind, their version of lostness was much different, perhaps worse, in your mind, than their own. When you can rejoice over another lost sinner who has come and found grace, you'll know you've released the sinful strategy of moral conformity. Why don't you stand?